listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. Good to see you. I hope you have a, a copy of God's Word uh, in your hands, even if it's just digitally through your phone, because we're getting in uh, to the Bible this morning. Um, as you probably picked up on, we are going to be in uh, Romans chapter 4, and we'll be uh, working our way through the entirety of, of this chapter this morning. Uh, in the time I have spent uh, preaching the Word of God, uh, one of the things that has never just kind of been a mainstay for me in my preparation is um, a manner of sermon title. Uh, it's just not typically the way I think about it, but this week uh, it seemed uh, appropriate and it seemed enforced upon me uh, that this morning deserved a title. And so that title would be, and I want you to hang on to this for the entirety of the sermon and hopefully for the rest of this week and the rest of your life, and it would just be simply... It has always been faith. It has always been faith. And so that's what we will be uh, discussing this morning. And so just so you know, as we've been walking through this book, uh, these weeks kind of do build on each other. And so uh, we try to recap a little bit, but we can't rehash all of what we discussed last week uh, through the second half of Romans chapter 3. So we will be building on that this morning because what Paul did in Romans chapter 3 was a, a very specific theological explanation of our salvation. So we talked about those ideas last week uh, of what God worked through the nation of Israel, but how they uh, find their fruition in Jesus Christ. So it was a, uh, a bit of a headier kind of explanation of the spiritual reality of how God redeems us and justifies us and Jesus being offered as a propitiation, as a payment for our sin. And so uh, Paul kind of pivots this morning and he goes from uh, more of a, a theological teaching to more of a, a personal or of a story illustration to explain how this is what God has been been doing uh, since the beginning of time. Because one of the things, uh, let me recap for you a little bit, that Paul is doing through the book of Romans is not just a, a clarifying of the gospel. He's also pointing out and doing the work to uh, make sure people understand that God has been the same that God has been just and God has been the same throughout time. It is not a new God that these Christians, these followers of Christ are following, that God has been the same. And so let me just repeat again, it has always been faith. And so this example that Paul uses, this personal illustration, will probably resonate with all of us on some level. Uh, even if you did not grow up necessarily within the Christian faith, a lot of people have heard of this biblical character of Abraham. And there's a lot of reasons. One is because three different monotheistic religions would call him their founder, both between Judaism and Christianity, and even Islam would look back to Abraham. So he's kind of this worldwide figure. But I think there's another reason that this character within the Bible um, resonates with a lot of people. Um, and so uh, I don't know if you realized it, but this past November, uh, November of 2022, uh, the Dutch pop artist and musician Pierre Kartner passed away which I don't know if that registered much in um, your life, had an effect on you if you saw that headline or missed that headline completely, but Pierre Kartner has had a profound effect on many of us, and it's for this reason. In 1971, he penned a song as a pop song that went on to be the hit known as Father Abraham. How many of y'all have ever sang Father Abraham? 
how many of you know the hand motions and the dance that goes along with it? Because we would all say, and it would be hard to ever, at this point in my life, get into the Bible if it references Father Abraham. In my head, there's like this compulsion that I have to say, had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them. Exactly. And so there is this resonance that happens when we talk about this character of Abraham. So a lot of us would probably understand that it is this Old Testament biblical character, but in our head we probably sing that song uh, from VBSs or from wherever you picked up on it. We all know it. Let's just praise the Lord. Right arm. Um, talk about calisthenics. We could get more of them in this morning. It's hard not to keep going once you start down that path. But there is this reality that there, there is this character that most of the world knows the name of. And it does have this association with the Bible. In fact, that song, what it takes off of is this promise we're going to look at in Genesis chapter 17, where God said to Abraham, he would be the father of many nations. And so there is a significance to this character because God did this work through this man. And so what Paul is doing is he's taking all of his explanation for the spiritual reality of our salvation from Romans chapter 3, and then he's going to use this personal illustration of how God made it clear in this man's life, in Abraham, how those things work themselves out. So he's going to do some correction and some teaching by using this personal story of Abraham. And so if you would look with me again in Romans 4 verse 1 through 3. This is what Paul says. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so one of the things Paul is doing is that this illustration, this example, this choosing of Abraham to illustrate how God has been working out his salvation is, is very targeted for his Jewish audience. Because he has been mounting this defense that everybody has this problem and they can't do anything about it. And so he's going all the way back kind of to the beginning of them as a people and this Jewish faith in this, in this example of Abraham. And so one of the things he is doing is he's going to challenge this Jewish-held belief in the way that they had viewed Abraham is that the significance of this character wasn't just that God had chosen him, but God chose him because he was already significant. And so it goes back to this idea of righteousness that we spent more time on last week that literally means like being completely morally perfect. And so when we talk about the righteousness of God, it's an aspect of his holiness that he is other and all of the actions he has taken has been completely morally perfect. And so what Paul is saying right here is in verse 3 is that the scripture says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now some of Genesis has been interpreted different ways and one of the ways the Jewish people held on to this idea of them being the chosen people is that they were significant and therefore God chose them versus they were significant because God chose them. And this went back to Abraham. It was believed about Abraham that he was righteous and that is why God looked on him with favor. 
And so if you know a little bit of the composition of our Bible, we have both the Old Testament and the New Testament. We hold to these 66 books as being uh, the inerrant word of God inspired by the Holy Spirit. But there are other writings that come out of the biblical time period uh, that also inform some of the ideas of Judaism. And so there's this intertestamental period in between uh, the book of Malachi and Jesus coming on the scene. And some of the writings in there explain how the Jews viewed Abraham. And so I'm going to pull a quote from you. And this is from a, a part of writing that's called the Prayer of Manasseh. And it's talking about how they viewed Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is what it says. It says, you, Lord, according to your gentle grace, promise forgiveness to those who are sorry for their sins. In your great mercy, you allowed sinners to turn from their sins and find salvation. Therefore, Lord God, of those who do what is right, and listen to this part, they say, you didn't offer Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who did not sin against you, a chance to change their hearts and lives, but you offer me, the sinner, the chance to change my heart and life. There is this Jewish notion of Abraham being righteous, therefore God chose him. And Paul's going to begin to challenge that notion. And so as Paul is explaining this gospel, this idea of how we have salvation with a holy God, this is a very important idea. And Abraham is a great case study. So some of the things we've been unpacking is this idea of the grace of God versus the law of Moses. And so we recognize that this law was pointing to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so you have to get into a lot of the history of what God's been doing throughout time. And so Paul has been combating with this idea of like, does the law justify? So last week we talked about that, that God has revealed his righteousness. You can be justified apart from the law. So Abraham is interesting because he actually predates the law of Moses, just chronologically. So it is this man that God chose uh, back near the beginning of the Bible, early in Genesis. And so it's saying, um, um, uh, as we already read, that Moses believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So there was already this righteousness that the Jewish people had an understanding of prior to the law. So he kind of transcends that idea of the Mosaic law of when that was going to come to fruition. But he's also there before uh, the final revelation of Jesus Christ, the grace of God. So he is kind of this figure that for our purposes today and for the Jewish people kind of transcends the salvation history God had been unfolding for the Jewish people. He is significant. He's viewed as their patriarch, that it was through him they actually became the Jewish people. And so if you've read the Old Testament, you know that all of the characters going forward in the Old Testament, they always refer back to their lineage. When they refer to God, they refer to him as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is a significant figure in the unfolding of God's plan in the world. And you can tell how significant the Jewish people take this idea of being in the line of Abraham. If you can recall in the Gospels in John chapter 8, Jesus has this confrontation with the religious people, with the Pharisees, and they get into this argument about lineage. And so one of the things the Jewish people claim as kind of their their stamp of approval of why they are the good guys is, hey, we are part of Abraham. We are sons of Abraham. And they say that about Jesus. Like, hey, we're not products of sexual immorality like you. We're a product of our father Abraham. And then Jesus makes this statement. He's saying like, hey, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And they get in this argument. They're like, what are you talking about? You're just a young man, and Abraham is our forefather. And then Jesus makes this statement about Abraham. He says, before Abraham was, I am. 
And their response to Jesus' declaration about Abraham is they try to kill him. Because they take this lineage very seriously because they think Abraham was special, therefore God chose them as a people, and that made them righteous in the eyes of God. And so it is a significant figure that we are going to be talking about this morning, the idea of how God chose Abraham and what took place in that reality. And so what Paul does in verse 3, this line we're going to come back to a lot, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul is quoting Genesis 15, verse 6. And in a lot of ways, all of chapter 4 that we uh, just heard read to us and we're going to be looking into, in a lot of ways, it's Paul's sermon on Genesis 15. And so he is bringing the text into us this morning, and then he's going to begin explaining what these words actually mean. And so if you know that story, and let let me just tell you, there's going to be several times this morning, I'm going to reference a chapter of the scripture that we don't have enough time to read, but I would encourage you, if you are a note taker, jot down those chapters, go back, engage with the word of God during this week, get into it in your own devotional time, because there is such richness and depth to what Paul's explaining, and it does have a lot of connections to other parts of the scriptures. And so, hey, if you have an opportunity this week, go back and read Genesis 15. Is this a significant portion of scripture? Because it is when God makes a covenant with Abraham. And the idea of covenant is very important in the Bible. It is a sacred promise from God. And so you can think of what God promised to Noah after the flood, that God made his covenant that he would not destroy the world with a flood. And then we get, we get the story of Abraham in Genesis 15. And it's already after this time, Abraham was a person that God said, hey, I want you to leave your family and go off into this land I'm going to show you. So Abraham had already followed God off away from his family. And then we get this scene in Genesis 15 that Abraham is already an older man and he has had no children. But God makes this promise to him. He says that he is going to make him a father of many nations. He repeats that line in Genesis 17, but in Genesis 15, God promises him a lineage that's going to come from him, and he promises him land to his children. And so God makes this promise, and it's elevated to this term covenant, a sacred promise from God. And then this interesting thing happens towards the end of Genesis 15. Abraham's having this conversation with God, and God gives him some instructions. He's like, hey, I've made this promise to you, and now I want you to perform a sacrifice. And so in ancient Near East culture, that would have been a part of entering into an agreement with somebody. And so God gives these instructions to get a couple of different animals, and then it's kind of this weird scene that transpires. He instructs Abraham, like, hey, cut these animals in half, put them on two different sides. And then Abraham's having this moment with God, and it says he falls into he falls asleep and he has this dream. And in his dream, it says that God shows up and God walks in between the two animal sacrifices. And he says it in two ways. It says that it's like a torch, like a fiery torch, and then like a pot that has smoke coming out of it. And they cross between these two animal sacrifices. So what is interesting about this scene and significant in our understanding of Abraham and what God does as he unfolds his history in this world is that for Abraham to have entered into a covenant with God, Abraham would have needed to pass between the sacrifices and God would have needed to pass through the sacrifices. But in the dream that Abraham has, there are two different things that pass through, a fiery torch and then a pot of smoke. And what that represents is actually that God passes through twice. 
And so if you know the story of the Exodus with the people of Israel, when they are being led out of Egypt, they are led by God, and God's presence is manifested by a pillar of smoke during the day and by a column of fire by night. It's how God shows up sometimes in our existence. And so what is taking place right here in Genesis 15 is God makes this promise to Abraham that Abraham does not have to uphold any of it because God enters into the promise with himself and Abraham gets to be the beneficiary of it. And so in most situations, if you're making a deal with somebody, you're like, hey, this is what I'm going to do and this is what you're gonna do. If either one of us violates it, uh, the deal is kind of done. But what uh, God is saying to Abraham is like, hey, here is my covenant to you, is I'm gonna make you a father of many nations, I'm gonna give you this land, and then God passes through the, the covenantal marker of the sacrifice twice, saying he's going to uphold both ends of the deal that it is no longer contingent on Abraham. God is taking both burdens on himself that he is going to uphold the covenant. And so that is what Paul is referencing in Genesis 15, right here written in Romans chapter four, because what it does say about Abraham, this is a direct quote from the Old Testament. It says, he believed God. So not that he did something significant, not that he was the most moral or godly person that had ever existed at this point. This is what it says. It said, he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, Paul keys in on this word, and he repeats it several times, that it was counted to him as righteousness. He does not say, and Abraham was very righteous. And so it begins to unpack this idea of uh, our relationship with God is not built on the foundation of me being a morally blameless person, but it's built on the fact that God always keeps his promises. And the covenant of God is extended towards people and it is guaranteed by God himself, not by us. And so when Abraham believed God, it is literally stating like all he did was trust that God would keep his own word and that that act of belief was what made Abraham be considered or counted as righteousness. And so that is something that Paul explains a lot of and talks about this idea of counted to him as righteousness. It's repeated over and over again. It means it wasn't his, it was given to him. And this becomes a significant theme. We've referenced a couple of times the, the Protestant Reformation and some of our understanding we have of the scriptures. And the reformers grabbed onto this language because it began to inform our ideas of salvation that it is only of work of God, that it's not something I can earn or enter into. It is something I believe in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and that is how I enter into this relationship with him. And so one of the things that came out of it was this idea of imputed righteousness, that there is this righteousness, this morally perfect God out there. And in order for me to be in a relationship with him, I also have to be morally perfect, which I am incapable of. And so the righteousness of God is given to us. It's not something we earned or achieved or manufactured on our own, but something God has imputed on our behalf. And that's what Paul's trying to explain to the hearers because he wants them to know and understand that it's always been faith. It's always been a work of God. You were not, not significant in and of yourself, but you were significant because God chose you and he will always uphold his promises. And so the other thing that the Jewish people latched onto a lot was this physical marker that separated them from the other nations of what God commanded them to in the act of circumcision to show that they were set apart. They believed that that was one of the ways they were made more significant, more holy than others. But it was once again something God was doing to show 
that it's always been faith. Would you look in verse nine of Romans chapter four? This is what he says. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And so the argument that Paul is making for this Jewish audience, because they would have understood the chronology of the Old Testament, that in Genesis 15, it's when that statement is made that uh, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And it wasn't until Genesis 17 that when Abraham actually got circumcised. And so in Genesis 17 is when that covenant is reaffirmed. God brings it back up to him like, hey, I made this promise to you and I'm going to fulfill it because a lot has transpired in Abraham's life. But one of the things that has not transpired is him having a kid yet through his wife, Sarah. And so if you know kind of that story, he did have a, another son through a concubine, uh, through Hagar, he had Ishmael, but he, he, how God viewed that lineage was that he was gonna build this nation, he was gonna bless all people through this line, through the covenantal marriage Abraham had with Sarah. So in Genesis 17, God shows back up and reaffirms like, hey, I am going to make you a father of many nations. It is going to be through Sarah. That is going to be your line. And as a sign of that covenant that God had already made, that's when the act of circumcision becomes a part of the Jewish tradition. And so God says like, hey, to have a sign of this covenant, this is what I want you in the males of your house to do. And so the significance of this for the Jewish people is that between Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 is about 20 plus years has transpired. And so if the Jewish people are looking at this physical act that they can perform of, hey, this is how I am righteous before God, what Paul is saying is that the righteousness Abraham received from God predated the giving of circumcision by about 20 years. So that couldn't be the case. In fact, Genesis 17, 11 says this, as, Paul, uh, as God was commanding this to Abraham, he says, you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So when God has called his people to act in a certain way or to perform what we could really reduce to rituals is for a specific purpose. Because sometimes we vilify this idea of ritual that we think it's the antithesis of relationship. But in a lot of ways, God calls us into ritual. And ritual is important for us because as people, ritual points us to a greater reality. And so ritual in and of itself is not bad. And God has always accompanied his covenants with ritual. And so you see this in the Old Testament with the sign of circumcision. God had made this promise that he was going to uphold. How can we recognize and um, keep in front of us and remember what God has promised? We can perform this ritual. In the same way, a lot of us have gone through the ritual of baptism. And that is a sign of the covenant promise of God, that when we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, it's like we are being united in his death and we are guaranteed the life with him to come. And so we perform this ritual of baptism. We go into the water like we're buried, and then when we come out, it's like a new life. When there is a promise of God, it's usually accompanied by a sign to remind his people of the promise he has made. 
We have another um, institution that a lot of us have entered into that we would elevate to that, uh, that station of covenant. It's the covenant of marriage. And when we enter into a covenant of marriage, we usually accompany that covenant with a sign of the ring. And as I walk through people, as they get closer through marriage, I talk about this reality. Because let me tell you, if I take this off, it doesn't make me unmarried. And if I put it on, it doesn't make me faithful in my marriage. It is a sign and a reminder of the promise I have made. And so what Paul is saying to the Jewish people that, is that circumcision did not bring righteousness upon them. It was a sign of the promise that God had already made that if you had entered into it by faith, he would count the righteousness of Jesus on your behalf. And that's the argument Paul is making, that Abraham is the father of both the uncircumcised and the circumcised, whether you've done the religious things or not done the religious things, that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are brought into these promises of God that he instilled into his relationship with people all the way back in Genesis 15. And this is what Paul does afterwards. And once again, Romans 4 is essentially a sermon. I could have just read it and called it good because Paul's making his main point with Genesis 15 and then he's going to bring uh, some supporting evidence through another text of Scripture, and it's from Psalm 32. If you would look in verse 7 of Romans 4, he quotes Psalm 32. He says this, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So Paul's giving his main evidence, like, hey, Abraham, the patriarch, it clearly says in the scriptures that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So before the law, before circumcision, the righteousness of God was revealed to him through faith. And I was saying, hey, also, King David, another significant figure in the life of the Jewish nation who would have come after the giving of the Mosaic law. So they already have the prescriptions on how they were supposed to live externally moral. And King David writes this. He says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. It doesn't say anything to the effect that blessed are those who did something really good to make up for all the bad things they've done. He's saying the person is blessed when they realize that God has passed over their sins. And why did God pass over their sins? Because he was going to place all the punishment on Jesus Christ. And Paul wants them desperately to know that that is the position of every single person, that we don't have a significance in and of ourselves that made God choose us. God chose us in our insignificance. God chose us in our sin. And that's what he explains in verse nine. He says, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? And it is important for us to realize that that doesn't make the law evil. And we're gonna continue to talk about that and Paul gets into it a little bit more because David uh, both writes Psalm 32 but he also writes Psalm one and he talks about the blessing of the person who loves the law. But he's also saying blessed is the person who's been forgiven, not because of anything they did, but because God chose to look over their sins. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers, uh, talking about Psalm 32, said this. Blessedness in, uh, is not, in this case, ascribed to the man who has been a diligent lawkeeper. For then it would never come to us, but rather to a lawbreaker who by grace most rich and free has been forgiven. Self-righteous Pharisees have no portion in this blessedness. Over the returning prodigal, the word of welcome is here pronounced, and the music and the dancing begin. 
A full, instantaneous, irreversible pardon of transgression turns the poor sinner's hell into heaven and makes the heir of wrath a partaker of blessing. That's what Paul is trying to explain and what we need to internalize this morning, that if you have received the blessing of the Father, it's not because you earned it. And that should be a hope for all of us because I know typically as I reflect on my life, always think of myself in terms of my best day. And so it's easy on that good day, like I did all the right things. I kind of checked all the boxes. I I made it happen. Or even if it's maybe not my best day, I kind of judge it off my own intentions. But inevitably, we know the day is coming when I'm gonna reject the things of the Lord, that I am not gonna walk in righteousness, when I'm gonna give in to thoughts and temptations that are not in line with the character and the righteousness and the holiness of God. And so we need to internalize this because what will begin to happen in our lives if we think that there is a significance to us and that's why God brought us in, and so when we do have that bad day, when we know we are not following God, if we are honest with ourselves, what we will begin to do is to cover up our sin and not bring it into the light so that God can deal with it because we think that we have a righteousness that we manifested of our own. But that's not the message of the gospel. And we need to understand the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. And so this is what Paul is saying in verse five. He says this, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. A lot of people throughout time have struggled with this verse five. Uh, It's translated sometimes differently. If you have the NIV, you might see right there that it says the one who justifies the wicked. And it's really a descriptor of of mankind. And we've already kind of talked about that. And even the reality, Paul quotes Psalm 14, where he says, no one is righteous, no, not one. And so Paul is saying like, hey, Abraham, not significant, not righteous, in and of himself, God chose him, and because if he hadn't, it would be like this idea of more of a job. And we read about that, he's like, hey, if you just did your job, then what you receive, that's just your due, but that's not the message of the gospel. Message of the gospel is we have received this incredible gift, not on our own merit, but because of the grace of God. And so he uses this term, the one who believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, or justifies the wicked. People struggle with this notion. A lot of times it can kind of offend our sense of fairness because once again, we typically view ourselves on our best day. And so we have this idea that, hey, um, I kind of deserved this position of favor with God and all those other sinners out there, they're kind of getting what comes to them. It kind of offends our notions at times if we do view ourselves as a moral people because Paul's making it really clear, like the only people who have gotten to the inside were wicked people that God introduced into his family. And we can struggle with that. It's an aspect of the gospel that can be offensive, You know, not super long ago, I kind of went on this uh, YouTube uh, rabbit trail on the recommended section. You just go from one to one to one. And um, I ended up on this video about the serial killer, Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, Can't explain all of the positions. But the video I actually watched was an interview with the pastor who baptized Jeffrey Dahmer in prison. It was a very fascinating conversation. Because the interviewer was asking the question of how this pastor understood his relationship with this serial killer who did horrific acts of violence and evil perpetrated on other people, just as as evil and grotesque as you can imagine. He was like, hey, what was your relationship with him like, and how did you end up at this point where you baptized this man 
um, as a serial killer. And it was a really fascinating conversation, but one of the aspects of that conversation was that pastor explaining all of the other people's responses to his relationship with the serial killer. That he got threats and he got a lot of accusations thrown at him that he didn't really understand or how could you ever do this to this such an evil man? And his kind of response to that was like, you know, if we actually believe the gospel, like that's all of us. And so it does kind of offend our sense of fairness at times to think that God would justify the wicked. We think we have earned a position in his kingdom by the good things that we have done, that God is kind of lucky to have us. Like it makes sense that I'm in because I've done these things, but the truth of the gospel is that all of us are under the condemnation of God. And if we neglect to remind ourselves of that reality, we will find ourselves in this position of self-justification that we think we got in based off of our own merit. And let me just tell you, brothers and sisters, that is just not the truth of the gospel. None of us deserve to be in. God justifies the wicked and praise God that he did or none of us would be in. The justification that comes from God is a gift by the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. But it is difficult for us to understand, and that's why uh, the Apostle Peter, he talked about this idea of the gospel and that Jesus justifies the wicked. He says the foundation of our faith, the cornerstone of Christ Jesus is built on it, but also that sometimes that stone is a stumbling block. We think we get in on our own. We think we can get in on our own, and that's just not the case. You are not in the family because you are awesome. We are the wicked that Jesus came to save. The other aspect that people struggle with in this verse is the idea that we do not work. That's what he says, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. And so the natural question that comes after that means like, okay, do I not have to do anything? I can just do whatever the heck I want for the rest of this life because Jesus justifies the ungodly, Jesus justifies the wicked, and so it doesn't matter the actions I take because all of it is the given, imputed righteousness of Jesus on my behalf. And I don't want to borrow from Romans chapter 5, but Paul makes it very clear that that's not the, uh, the case when it comes to the gospel. And I think one of the things we struggle with as people is that often when it comes to matters of following Jesus, we can mix up cause and effect. Because the Bible is very clear, our actions do matter. That God has called us to live a certain way, that the way we go through this life, the, the moral aspect of our out, outlived life does matter to God, but we can mix up this idea of cause and effect. And it is easy for us to think that the cause is my righteousness, and then the effect is God looking out on me, or the cause is the works I did, and the effect is God's righteousness. But the reality of our faith is that the cause is belief in God, and the effect is an outworking of God's righteousness in my life. Works comes after faith, and we don't want to mix these up. Our justification, this word that is used of our being declared righteousness before God, is a change in our legal status before a holy God, but it doesn't fix all the junk that's inside. And that's why we have these other aspects of the gospel that we are going to delve into, the idea of sanctification, of how God is going to begin this work in us once his righteousness has been imputed to our behalf, that this is just the beginning as we enter into this relationship, enter into this family. But we have to remember that no one is righteous, no, not one, and the righteousness of God has been counted to us. It has been imputed to us. And you know, as Paul said last week, he said all the law, all of the prophets testified to this reality that the righteousness of God is made shown outside of the law. And it's true. It's the whole story of the Old Testament. 
It's not that people were awesome, it's that God was faithful. And going back all the way to Genesis with the patriarch of Abraham, it's God is going to uphold both sides of the deal because we are incapable of holding our end of the promise. And so you see this story repeated over and over and over again. It's not that the people of Israel nailed all the rules. It's that God was faithful and patient and long-suffering and forgiving and merciful because he knew that the coming day was going to be Jesus on the cross, upholding all of the promises, all of the justice, all of the righteousness, all the holiness of God was going to be poured out on him so that we could still have this relationship. And so once again, if you're going to be uh, reading some scripture this week, I would invite you to just write down Ezekiel 36. It's this incredible passage in the Old Testament. Comes right after the Valley of Dry Bones, if you're familiar with that. But I love Ezekiel 36 because it is this revealing that it's always been God who is going to do the work. And there is this passage in Ezekiel 36, 22. He talks about um, how he is going to clean up Israel. And in all of it, God speaking, it's always a a, a first-person narrative. God saying, I'm going to take you. I'm going to wash you. I am going to make you clean. I am going to remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And he says, I am going to be your God and you are going to be my people. It's always been God who's been the initiator and the guarantee of our righteousness with him. It's always been him who's going to do the work. And so how do we enter into that work? Through faith. And Paul's doing that with Abraham. He is correcting their false notions that Abraham was deserving, but he's also commending Abraham because that's what the Old Testament talks about, that Abraham was commended for his faith. He left us as an example for how we do enter into this relationship with God. And so, once again, the title of the sermon, it has always been faith. That's what brings us into relationship with God. And faith can be a hard thing to wrap our head around of how it actually works itself out because it's like belief, but stronger. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, there's another one you can jot down. You've got a lot of homework this week, but it should be good time spending with the Lord. Hebrews chapter 11 is the clearest chapter in the Bible of what faith actually is and what it looks like. And it talks about Abraham in this passage. It references a lot of these Old Testament characters, how it was always faith that brought them into this relationship with God. In Hebrews chapter 11, this is how it defines faith. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And it goes as far as to make the statement that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And then it commends all of these Old Testament characters not for being morally upright or without sin in their own lives, but it commends them because they believed the promises of God. Not only did they believe them, they based their whole life upon them and they were looking ahead to things that they had not yet seen. That's what it talks about Abraham. When God calls him away from his family, like, hey, I'm gonna make you a nation, I'm gonna give you a land. Abraham never saw that land. He never saw the kingdom of Israel take root and flourish in that area of the world. And so what it says in Hebrews 11 is that he was looking ahead to this city whose foundation is the Lord that his belief in the promise of God was that God was going to uphold his word, and because he believed God and acted accordingly, it was counted to him as righteousness. As Paul said back in Romans 1:17, the righteous will live by faith. And this is what the last half of Romans 4 talks about in regards to Abraham. Would you read with me in verse 16? That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, 
not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Abraham believed the promises of God and he acted accordingly. And now as God continues to fulfill his promise to Abraham, we get to be partakers in that promise. And we get to join that family of faith and believe in the same promises that he did. Paul said this to the church in Galatians about this very reality. He says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Our faith, our belief, our conviction, our hope is in the immutable reality that God always keeps his promises. And so when I go through my life and make decisions on what I am planning for tomorrow, of what I am building my hope on, what is my value system, what do I think is the highest reward, what is the highest good in my mind, it has to be based on the reality that God always keeps his promises. And so my encouragement to you, brothers and sisters, is to go all in with Jesus. I think we have an understanding of what it means to ask Jesus to forgive my sins, but I would just say, like, don't make any secondary plans for the fulfillment of your life. Don't look for other things that can satisfy your soul. Don't plan on being righteous so that you won't have to give an account to God. Go all in with Jesus. Believe the promises of God that he is going to uphold both sides of the equation, that when he calls us to himself, it is with the ability to cleanse me of my sin by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that it has always been my faith in believing that God will fulfill his word that brings me into right relationship with him. Go all in with Jesus. The promises of God are sufficient for this life and the next. So I wanna leave you where I started. Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham and I am one of them and you can be too. Why? Because it's always been faith that brings us into right relationship with God. That is the offer he extends to every one of his beloved children that he created in his image and desires to know on a personal deep level. Believe in the promises of God. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you 
for the guarantee of our faith, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who, as your word says, for the joy set before him went to the cross, taking my sin upon his very body, knowing that I wouldn't be able to be perfect, that even after his righteousness had been given to me, that my heart's going to wander, and so that I need a provision for my life, and that provision is Jesus. God, as your word says in Philippians that you who began a good work are going to be faithful to complete it. God, and my hope is in that promise that you're gonna keep your word. God, that I am incapable, God, but you are more than capable so that when I am weak, you are strong. God, that I'm not counting on my own ability to be moral, but I'm counting on the reality that Jesus is more than enough. God, help us to be all in, to not trust in ourselves, to not trust in anything this world would commend to us, God, but trust completely in Jesus. He is all we need. He is enough. He is our Savior. And it is with great privilege we get to bring these words to you and pray them in his name, in the name of Jesus Christ.